we have to get to a point where we all do things in a reliable, consistent way. And we don't have that now. Currently, we really depend on individual nurses and individual physicians compensating for a chaotic system in which they work. The level of stress going on is almost as, as profound as it has been for the last two years, but it's off the front page. It's not off the units. The burnout rates are higher than they have ever been. Welcome back to Up Next for Patient Safety, where we envision a world where medical errors, adverse events, and preventable harms are avoided, and where we examine the most promising paths to prevent these tragedies before they occur. I'm your host, Karen Feinstein, CEO and President of the Jewish Healthcare Foundation and the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, which is a multi-stakeholder quality collaborative. We've been working to reduce medical error for over 20 years, mostly unsuccessfully, but we can't give up because there's too much at stake. And that is the loss of approximately 250,000 lives a year and long-term injuries for many more. In this podcast series, we've considered the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic from many perspectives. What could, however, be one of the most important side effects of greatest long-term significance is the impact of the pandemic on the adequacy and sufficiency of the healthcare workforce. Exhausted, fearful, depressed, and frustrated, nurses, physicians, and other clinical care participants are resigning and retiring in record numbers. Established and familiar teams are dissolving. Agency nurses can't replace experienced veterans who once handled many routine tasks efficiently and automatically together as a team, all of which has created a situation where adverse events and medical errors have sadly multiplied. Some have already called this the other pandemic. On today's episode, we'll talk with two distinguished and knowledgeable guests about the extent of this problem and what we can do moving forward. Dr. Christine Sinsky is the Vice President of Professional Satisfaction at the American Medical Association. She previously served on an expert advisory panel uh, for the CMS Innovation Center's Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative, the Veteran Administration's Primary Care Redesign, and on the National Committee for Quality Assurance Provider Programs Committee with oversight of the Patient-Centered Medical Home from 2007 to 2011. She is co-author of the Institute of Medicine's 2011 report, Health IT and Patient Safety. Dr. Sinsky was a director on the American Board of Internal Medicine and a trustee for the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. She's provided testimony to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT on EHRs with respect to both care coordination and usability. Dr. Sinsky received her BS and MD degrees from the University of Wisconsin in Madison and completed her postgraduate residency at Gunderson Medical Foundation, La Crosse Lutheran Hospital in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We're so glad to have you here, Chris. Uh, Dr. Terry Fulmer is the president of the John A. Hartford Foundation in New York City, a foundation dedicated to improving the care of older adults. Established in 1929, the foundation has a current endowment of more than half a billion dollars. 
She serves as the chief strategist for the foundation, and her vision for better care of older adults is catalyzing the age-friendly health system social movement. She's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and served on the Independent Coronavirus Commission for Safety and Quality in Nursing Homes, established to advise the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She previously served as Distinguished Professor and Dean of Health Sciences at Northeastern University. Prior to that, she served as the Erline Perkins McGriff Professor and Founding Dean of the New York University College of Nursing. She received her bachelor's degree from Skidmore College, her master's and doctoral degrees from Boston College, and her geriatric nurse practitioner postmaster's certificate from NYU. She completed a Brookdale National Fellowship, and she's the first nurse to have served on the board of the American Geriatric Society. She's also the first nurse to have served as president of the Gerontological Society of America, which awarded her the 2019 Donald Ken Award for exemplifying the highest standards for professional leadership in the field of aging. So as you can see, we have the right people here to talk about this critical topic. The COVID pandemic has resulted in a massive workforce shortage. Can you tell us more about the relationship between an overwhelmed and increasingly insufficient workforce and medical error? Dr. Sinsky from the medical MD perspective and Dr. Fulmer from the nursing perspective. Chris, you wanna head this off? Sure, sure, thanks so much, Karen. As we all know, the first year of the pandemic brought a lot of unknowns, and I think it brought unprecedented levels of death, levels that nurses and physicians had generally not personally experienced before. And this coupled with higher workloads and with dealing with a disease for which we had no known treatment, uh, with fears of personally becoming infected or bringing the virus home to your family, it was more than most physicians and nurses had ever experienced. In addition, many of our healthcare workers were redeployed to units where they had less experience. So they felt less competent and that too added to the stress. In the second year of the pandemic, the workload just didn't abate. And in fact, for some, it seemed like it just kept increasing. There's this really interesting study that showed that the number of patient portal messages, that is the communication that patients did with their physician or APP through uh, uh, electronic means, uh, through an, an equivalent of an email, increased abruptly by 157% at the onset of the pandemic. And that even as in-person visits returned to their normal levels, the number of patient portal messages did not decrease. And so it was as if there was this second after hours job that physicians and others were, were managing. Um, and so no relief there. And even before the pandemic, we had good evidence that for primary care physicians uh, who were seeing patients 36 hours uh, of patient schedule time a week, that that actually translated into a 72 hour work week. That was before we had this massive increase in the amount of electronic communication and care via electronic means. And so we know that the workload has even increased further. And so I don't think it's a surprise that in a survey that we did in the second year of the pandemic, 24% of physicians and 40% of nurses said that they were likely to leave their current position in the next two years. And Karen, I don't know how we're gonna handle that. 
you know, we've got an aging population. We've got now all the perhaps as many as 20% of patients who've had COVID will develop long COVID symptoms. There may be higher rates of uh, diabetes and heart disease in the population because of the widespread COVID infections. And, and I think we are facing some really serious workforce woes. Uh, we, I think we have a bill coming due that people who've, who've kind of stood up to the challenge during the first portion of the pandemic are saying, yeah, but I can't keep this up. I have heard, and I, I know both of you have, from a number of systems, health systems, who say to me candidly, even with more nurse applicants for nursing schools, we will never replace the nurses we've lost. It, it they're not out there. <laughs> it it won't happen, you know. And so we're maybe looking at a redesign. Terry, tell us about this from the nursing perspective. The the hemorrhaging is painful. Yes, it is. And as I'm listening to Chris speak, my anxiety level is going up, and because it's it's so real to any of us who lived through that. And I, I was speaking to a friend yesterday and said, this summer is fundamentally different than the last two summers where there was never a moment where I felt like I could let up. And you know, Karen, I think one of the things you said that was just brilliant was this articulation that established teams are dissolving. And, and I think as Terry talks about the fact that we may not ever recover the nursing workforce that we need. I also think, or, or that we had, I also think it's important to realize that when we have many of our nurses filling in in traveler positions and moving and the, the great reshuffle of nurses who've been at one institution now are at another, you know, our effective nursing workforce has dropped because uh, those who are working in a traveling position cannot possibly contribute the same amount that they were contributing in their home institution. And, and so my fear is that that's actually resulted in sort of an effective workforce that may be 30 or 40% lower than the body count would suggest. And it is interesting, Chris, the, in the vast UPMC health system, one unit always stands out. It's a GI unit at one of our hospitals as the quality champion unit. Those nurses have been there together for almost 30 years. They know exactly what they're doing. They, and you know, it is a nurse run unit, but they're, they're this flawless team and, and they work as a team. Once you start moving people around, once they start dissolving, I don't think you can replace that. You can't replace it. And I'm going to give you a perspective of nursing administration where they have been as innovative and creative as they know how to be. And even in the midst of, say, additional lines, their ability to staff a unit is, as you pointed out, extremely limited. And the answer to that is to close units. Now, imagine you're telling your CEO as a nurse administrator, that you you need to close units for safety. That's what we're talking about here today. And so that does not go over well. And it's seen as a flaw of the nurse administrator that he or she doesn't have the capacity 
to staff up and be ready. Everybody wants to do more surgeries because people have waited. I understand that. Um, and by the way, there's still COVID out there. And now people are concerned about monkeypox. I think that uh, the level of stress going on is almost as, as profound as it has been for the last two years, but it's off the front page. It's not off the units. So we, we have to, I mean, I personally witness this when I'm at the, the hospital where I work, and it's quite shocking to see just how almost numb people are. So, so we have to think about solutions. And we have to think about how to support people in their work so that there isn't a massive exodus of nurse administrators. That's, that's as bad as losing a nursing assistant and nurse, losing a nurse is losing those nurse administrators who have extraordinary talent and capacity and knowledge and history and experience. And Karen, that's your point. You know, what do we do if we lose these people with experience and they're hanging on by their fingernails right now? So getting to them, supporting them. And that's, Karen, where you hear me talk about my nurse attending model, where every faculty member in the United States in nursing and beyond, you know, it's, it's a multidisciplinary effort, but needs to see a role for themselves in a practice site, whether it is in a nursing home, whether it is in an ICU, no matter where it is, a mental health clinic, see a role and be there to support, uh, enhance communication, participate, and bear witness so that when you teach a student, you're doing it with real experience. And, and it is interesting. We were involved in the nursing crisis of the early 2000s, which at that point seemed serious, but nothing like where we are now. But we did a survey and we wanted to understand why nurses uh, were leaving. And we were quite surprised. We thought it would be the compulsory extra shifts. We had, we had a number of assumptions, which turned out not to be true. The number one reason on our survey was when nurses were moved to a unit that dealt with a condition with which they weren't familiar. And we were so surprised at that. But I know when our woman's hospital became a general hospital, the uh, maternity nurses, the obstetric nurses, they were very discombobulated when they were caring for a lot of very senior, frail men. <laughs> that, that was just not their forte. So... We're, we see this happening a lot right now during, of course, a COVID crisis, but not understanding the impact it's having. But Karen, you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? What is the alternative there? You try to retain those nurses, but you have to support them. You have to give them the guidance and support and listen to their concerns and find a place in the organization where they can participate in a safe and meaningful way. You can't just move people around like widgets, but I have seen very effective administrators listen, take the advice of those nurses about where they can be most useful, which may be in a very different place than you'd think, and then retain them by doing that respectful listening. I also think, and then back to Chris, that we use the word crisis as if it's, everything's a crisis these days and people are not listening anymore. When we say we have a nursing crisis, it's like Sure, what else do you want to talk about? I think we're going to have to use as much data as possible to make the points that are going on. How many, how many units are closing 
how many errors are happening because of insufficient clinical staffing and what are the solutions. So I know we're talking about that today. One thing that surprised us way before the pandemic, we do a fellowship for graduate students in health professions. We actually do three. And one student did a project as part of the fellowship. And so she did a survey of our graduate students, say 35 of our graduate students in health professions. And it was part of a project she was doing. And she asked them a number of questions. And one, have you ever contemplated suicide? And I don't know if this will shock you, but we had a third of the students say yes. They, at some point in their life, they thought about suicide. So Chris, I know your role at the AMA focuses on the problem of physician burnout, but, but we know this problem preceded COVID. People think this is a COVID crisis. Could, could you talk to us a lot about burnout, depression, anxiety, how the AMA addresses this problem? Sure, I'm happy to, uh, Karen. Uh, we've been tracking burnout at the AMA uh, in partnership with researchers from Mayo Clinic and Stanford since 2011. And we do a national representative survey every three years. And so we've been tracking this since 2011. It Burnout rates peaked in 2014 at 54% of physicians experiencing some sign of burnout. And of course that's worrisome because when we're burned out, we make twice as many errors as, as when we're not. So it really is a patient safety issue. We had our fourth survey hit at the fall of 2020. So uh, in the first year of the pandemic, and we were really interested to see what those rates would be and somewhat counter to the narrative. The rates were actually the lowest that they had ever been in the period of time we've been monitoring, uh, 38%. Um, however, in physicians who were, were in specialties that were involved in direct care of COVID patients, they didn't show improvement, they had stayed steady. And there are reasons why uh, the population of physicians may have shown a decrease, you know, more meaning and purpose in work, more community. And for some of our physicians, elective care was on hold. And so the workload for some was less. So we performed an off-cycle burnout assessment a year later, so late in the course of the second year of the pandemic. And we have uh, just submitted that manuscript uh, for publication. And, and I can give you a sneak preview just to, to say that the burnout rates are higher than they have ever been, using the very same methodology that we have used since 2011. And so that's very worrisome. Uh, and another database that we have is completely separate uh, uh, methodology in tracking burnout rates using the MINI-Z uh, instrument. We also found that burnout rates uh, just accelerated at the end of 2021 uh, to the point where it was over 60% of physicians experiencing some sign of burnout. I think, you know, you started out by talking about suicide, and that's really an important topic. And it's absolutely tragic when anyone uh, dies by suicide. Um, and it has, uh, you know, rippling consequences for everyone around them. And I think it's important for us to distinguish between depression and burnout because they're not the same. Burnout is an occupational distress disorder, and it is related to the external environment. 
it is not an individual illness or weakness or a flaw. Depression is a really complicated mental illness and it has complex contributing factors. You know, our genetics, our biology, our social circumstances all contribute uh, to depression, but, but they're just, they're, they're not the same. And um, it's been really challenging to identify the rates of uh, suicide uh, among physicians. There are some off-quoted numbers, but it, uh, we are currently working with Stanford to do uh, a more in-depth study uh, of the National Death Index to see if we can get clear data on the rates of suicide uh, among physicians. And the AMA has invested several million dollars every year over the past decade to address physician burnout, supporting research into the drivers and consequences of burnout and uh, in interventions and solutions. Terry, as you mentioned, that can help to uh, solve the problem. We do a lot of, uh, we do burnout assessment and organizational well-being assessments at no cost. Uh, we've had over 1.4 million unique users to uh, of some of our toolkits and podcasts. So we are really working to reduce uh, the rates of burnout uh, among physicians and their teams. And then finally, I'll just mention one last thing that we've created at the AMA, and that's a Joy in Medicine Health System Recognition Program. Uh, and we created that because we know that we need not more resilient individuals, we need need more resilient organizations, organizations that are structurally organized in a way that supports and protects the individuals within. And so that's what this recognition program does. It celebrates those Vanguard health systems that are already on the journey, but more importantly, it provides a roadmap for organizations who say, oh my gosh, I know we have a problem, but I just don't even know where to start. And we've been pleased to find that many uh, leaders have used this program as their guide, as they develop uh, well-being as a strategic value within their organization. I love that, Chris. And I, the other thing I would say about that is we have language now and we have data now about burnout. In When I was beginning my career, you would never say, that you were tired or that you were stressed. That was considered a good way to get kicked out of your internship if you're a physician. And if you were a nurse, yeah. it's like, what's wrong with you if you can't keep up? Uh, we we're very harsh and it's a sea change. And it's hard for older clinicians to empathize completely with our newest clinician set who say, you know, I need a mental health day. It, it's anathema to them. They don't know what the other person is talking about. And that's a part of this whole solution. And I know it's in your program because I read about it, Chris. I also would like to talk a minute when uh, about nursing homes. You know I want to talk about nursing homes. And to say that when we're talking about systems, nursing homes are a vital and critical element of our health care system, as is public health. But in, in COVID, more than 200,000 deaths occurred among long-term residents and staff and staff. I'm in New York state, in the city, in the early part of the pandemic, all PPE personnel and equipment was sent to the ICUs and nursing homes were using cloth masks, garbage 
bags to cover up and they are off the radar again, you know, as we talk about, it's sort of like that has not settled out. Those systems have been devastated. Many are closing. Many nursing homes are closing because they cannot um, maintain the regulate regulatory capacity that is required of them to, to practice. And so I think, and their largest workforce shortages have been with the nursing aides and technical staff yeah. who oversee all the care needs. They And not to mention the fact that then when we put everybody in social isolation in nursing homes and did not allow visitors to come in, older people had more pressure ulcers, more delirium, which is acute confusion. They had more medication errors. They had just a lot of terribly serious problems that happen. And a, a recent study in Connecticut nursing facilities found that an increase in registered nurse staff of 20 minutes a day resulted in 22% fewer cases of COVID. So it's, it's very clear that when you have adequate staff, be they nursing assistants, licensed practical nurses or nurses, you increase the quality of care, you improve the opportunity for those staff members to take care of the person and you decrease hospitalizations. Take a look at your data, Chris, and I know you know this. Um, when do most people get transferred to the hospital? Friday afternoon, right? Here comes weekend staffing. Here comes, I don't know what to do. And they go to the emergency room. So I think all those things are a part of the safety quality partnership that we need to have as a honest to God healthcare system where every point of care is, is noted in the system. Back to you, Karen. I have to applaud the joy in medicine program. I, I know you have a lot of work to do. You know, we have a family member who just needed a break surgeon. So he didn't go hiking. He went to a developing country just for six months to help residents learn complicated surgical techniques. And he, this is someone who had won the medical resident award for teaching, but the hospital sort of said, we're not sure we'll take you back. You know, you know, goodbye. Maybe you'll come back. Maybe you won't. And I'm thinking, where's the understanding, you know, at the hospital level, I think if nurses and physicians need a break, not asking to be paid, you know, we, we need to have some flexibility here. These are human beings who are struggling and we, we all know, we all know during the pandemic, some of us needed a break, but I like the joy in medicine. I like maybe a, a more sensitive attitude toward understanding what, what the, the clinical staff need when they need it. So let me just go back to medical error for, for one moment, because I think of medical error and the workforce crisis as conjoint twins. We hired a young nurse, wonderful young woman. I don't like to hire nurses. Terry knows this. And I say to them, I want you in the hospital when I need help. And they say, we're going to leave. You know, like, we would love to work for you, but if they don't. So we hired one. And at, after two weeks, how are you doing? And she said, I love my new job. I love my new job. I know at the end of the day, I haven't killed anyone. So let's talk a little bit about building an environment where nurses feel they're supported in not doing harm. So we all know, and we're not going to go back over a recent case that did get our attention at least, where a nurse was criminally prosecuted 
um, and convicted for what was an egregious medical error, but also a great system failure in many ways. I, I'm trying to think of how do we build, as the human factors engineers would say, a better airplane. How do we create systems where people are less likely to create an error? You know, we, we know other industries do this. We know that our astronauts who go to the space station and, and the moon, they're protected by systems that are wired to keep them safe. They're, they're not necessarily keeping themselves safe. How do we help develop systems where, where physicians and nurses are prevented from committing as many errors as possible? So I, I know, Terry, you've given this a lot of thought. I have, Karen, and I think that it's predictable when you, you have people doing overtime, when you have people who are on a unit that's not appropriately staffed. You're just setting yourself up for error, and in this case, you know, horrific error. And so we have begun a narrative in this country, and the American Medical Association, American Nurses Association have done a great job talking about, we will support you. Error, you know, to, to error is human. The report came out. And, and to figure out where in this, what failed in the system that created the opportunity for something that bad to happen. And so I am very concerned about the number of workarounds that are going on in the clinical arena right now. What's a workaround mean? Well, if you're supposed to use a medication delivery cart in a particular way where there's a fail-safe check to make sure that you have done all of the steps, if you can work around that uh, and in order to speed up your efforts, people will do that because they're under so much pressure. So how do we how do we figure this out? I think that, you know, just, I know that IHI also has a, a national patient safety uh, and a national action plan going on. So the more they have like 37 organizations that are in that tent, the more all of us tell the story of how we're going to prevent error through system approaches. I do believe we'll have a lot more electronical, um, is that a word? Electronic capacity to stop us from those workarounds that do create error. And, you know, I, I always look with envy at the commercial aviation safety team cast. And the reason, not only because they've, they've had an amazing impact on anticipating and preventing harm, because they get accurate data, not only on incidents, but on near misses from every one of the airlines. The airlines came together and they said, this is a, a joint problem. This is a problem for all of us. It's, it's what happens in one place affects others. And that the solution, if we're going to prevent errors before they happen, is that all of us have to share data. All of us have to come around the table. All of us have to salute interdisciplinary expertise to help us, the airlines, be as safe as possible. Chris, what are the chances? How do we get health systems to come together and say, look, what happens at Vanderbilt University affects us at MGB? Where do we get a cast like, let's come together, let's all share data, updated data on incidents, near, near misses, everything that will shed light on how we prevent harm. 
Karen, you said in the beginning to this uh, conversation how important human factors perspectives are. And I think we need to integrate human factors engineering into every single health system and into every unit within each health system. I think currently we really depend on individual nurses and individual physicians compensating for a chaotic system in which they work. And we assign responsibility and blame to the individual nurse or physician if there's a medication error or a, a, a different error in the care of patients. Our, our infrastructures are based on that. Our quality metrics often are at the individual physician level, for example, rather than at the unit level or the system level. Malpractice is generally directed at the individual level. And I think we have to change those infrastructures we have to be aware of cognitive workload. We expect our physicians and others to have like a superhuman capacity to work despite distractions and interruptions and um, a chaotic display of information and somehow like overcome all of those barriers to safe care. And when you mention the airline industry, what that brings to my mind is this notion of creating a manageable cockpit for clinicians, just as the airline industry creates a manageable cockpit for pilots. They recognize the importance of human factors engineering and the importance of avoiding cognitive overload. So I have a series of pictures that a pilot sent to me of the cockpit over the decades. And in 1970s, it's a wild mass of lights and beeps and buttons. And then in 2000, it's a little cleaner. And in 2010, it is a beautiful, clean, crisp display with only the most important things visible and process coupling so the things you need are next to that point of action. And at Boeing, and I suspect at other uh, manufacturers, there's a team of engineers whose sole responsibility is, it is to adjudicate all the potential things, lights, buzzers, warnings that can enter into the cockpit and make sure that in aggregate, the pilots are in an environment where they can safely do their job, where they are not overwhelmed with too much information, too disorganized information, missing information, chaotic information, or information and action that are uh, accessed, accessed through a cumbersome series of, of screen changes. But we have that absolute opposite in healthcare. Our physicians are trying to make decisions by holding one little piece of information in one part of their brain as they scroll to three different screens to find another piece of information, then they scroll to another couple of screens to put that into action. And it's just a really unsafe environment. And our technology, our electronic health records have not really been designed to make it a manageable cockpit to bring only the information you need at the point of care for that decision and not be overwhelmed by a clutter of distracting information. And so I'm optimistic that this can change, but we have to take it seriously. 
I love that, Chris, and the the metaphor of cockpits and chaos in the healthcare arena is a very powerful one. And I I would be remiss if I didn't uh, make a comment about the American Organization of Nurse Leaders and the American Association of Colleges of Nursing who are working together uh, constantly to think about ways to really improve the cacophony going on in in the system right now that makes it so challenging to have an error-free healthcare system. I think that what we lack so much is reliability. And I'll talk about the practice of nursing for a minute and say that I we, we have to get to a point where we all do things in a reliable, consistent way. And we don't have that now. We, you know, I might change a dressing in a particular way and the next nurse in might do it differently. And that has to stop. We have got to figure out uh, how to ensure reliability in practice that is evidence-based. That's why we work on age-friendly health systems. We believe improving care for older adults improves care for everybody. But when we work with our age-friendly health system, we use a person-centered approach and we always employ a 4M framework with every single person. And that is the four M's are what matters to the older person and their families, what their goals and preferences are. Medications, ensuring that their people are not on too many or too few drugs and that those drugs are consistently screened for potentially inappropriate medication use, which happens all the time, all the time. And each of us know a story that probably happened this week. I'm thinking about my brother-in-law when, when I heard what they were going to put him on, I immediately said, do not take those pills. And he didn't. Uh, but how many of those happen? And then, so what matters? Medication, mentation, your mood and memory. What's going on with the older person is their acute delirium, which is as is, is serious as a cardiac arrhythmia. And then thinking about mobility. And is, is the person getting out of bed, not for 10 minutes a day, but regularly? What is the reliable unit of time out of bed that's going to help a person avoid sarcopenia, avoid unnecessary uh, restriction, and really work through the way in which people need to be kept as functionally strong as possible? Because if we uh, improve the, the cardiac arrhythmia, but at the same time, if that person develops a pressure ulcer, they're weak, they go home, they fall, they hit their head, they come back, what have we really done? So thinking about this in a, a reliable, consistent, data-based way, uh, and we have lots on our website, and we welcome everybody to look at our website at the Johnny Hartford Foundation for the data from the systems that are showing us that you can deliver reliable, consistent care that improves outcomes, and it takes intentionality. Amen. Carrie, if you don't mind, oh, I'd love to follow through, follow on on something you said, because I think when we think about what will drive improvements in safety, you mentioned reliability, and I think that's really important. It made me think also that particularly in the ambulatory clinic space, which is where the majority of patients get their care. And it's where if we have really optimal care in the ambulatory space, we can decrease the amount of hospital care and the number of procedures that are done. 
And so what I think another dimension that will drive safety, particularly in the ambulatory space, is teamwork. And I mean something really specific when I mean teamwork. I don't mean fragmenting care among a lot of different people. I mean having a coherent, stable team. And when I think of teamwork, I think of team structure, how many people are working together, team skill level, have are these medical assistants or RNs, and have they been up-trained to the skills needed for their particular environment? Have we invested in that? And then stability, the same people working together day after day. I was fortunate to work with a team of nurses in my practice uh, as an internal medicine physician. And one of my nurses and I worked together for over 20 years. Uh, two of the other nurses were together with us for over 10 years. So that's a situation where you can really work well together in service of patients. And if I could make one suggestion to improve safety for patient care in the ambulatory space to improve the outcomes, it would be to increase the number of RNs who are working in the ambulatory care space, not off in an office by themselves doing prescription renewal or doing some sort of population health management, but integrated into the team, working shoulder to shoulder with the physician or APP who's responsible for the patients and they're responsible together. I knew that we had reached a really important point in our development of our team when one of the nurses said, my patients, and this, these are my patients, this is what I can do for my patients. And that's exactly the kind of ownership mentality that I think is a consequence of being in tight, stable teams where you value relationships, where you prioritize relationships. And I think relationships throughout the healthcare system are the secret sauce that we've been ignoring. And we ignored it when we allowed nurses to just shuffle around from place to place. We ignore it when we think having anybody will do and uh, in any location. Uh, we ignore it when we fragment care uh, among many different uh, locations. And we ignore it when we say pool nursing, any nurse can work in any ambulatory setting. Um, that undermines the secret power of relationships. I, I love that. I think it's a wonderful note to end on. The one thing we know, other countries have really done more to have a team responsibility for a distinct geographic area for people who live in that area in a very interesting way that transcends any particular setting of care. I think we all heard a report on this recently. Uh, also, Chris, what you said today, remind me, I, I saw a report, it just came out, at least to my attention today, by Paul Keckley. It's time for hospitals to implement Plan B. And of course, you, you would love it. Um, he said a lot about um, the things you were discussing. Maybe it's time to have a major transformation, to rethink where, how, by whom we deliver medical care with a kind of blending of in-hospital, community care, public health, and other health care. It, it's just um, for both hospital care and skilled nursing, it may be time for a plan B. So 
that's something for another podcast. Also, a recent article I just read uh, by Zeke Emanuel and um, I guess another co-author about we'll have safety when we have economic incentives. That's a topic we could talk about for a while. I hate to think that, that that's what's going to make the difference, but both of these are another podcast. Meanwhile, I know I can keep relying on advice from both of you on this critical topic. Uh, you're, you're both so intelligent, distinguished, compassionate. Uh, I couldn't think of two people to discuss this critical issue with and get more wisdom, but we all know it's the issue we can't ignore. So let us hope, um, whether it's plan B or other kinds of transformations, that we start rethinking what is it we're doing that isn't working and how do we make the changes that would be so critical, not only to patient safety, but worker safety, safety that's not only physical, that's emotional. So thank you so much for today. I know we could keep going because this topic deserves it. Thank you. Thanks for bringing us together. Thanks, Bye, Karen. Chris. Bye, Thanks, Karen. Terry. To learn more about the effort to establish a National Patient Safety Board please visit npsb.org. We welcome your comments and suggestions. If you found today's conversation enlightening or helpful, please share today's podcast or any of our other podcasts with your friends and colleagues. We can't improve the effectiveness of our health system without your help. You, our listeners, friends, and supporters are an essential part of the solution. If you want a transcript or the show notes with references to related articles and resources, that can be found on our website at npsb.org podcast. Up next for Patient Safety is a production of the National Patient Safety Board Advocacy Coalition in partnership with the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative and Jewish Healthcare Foundation. It is executive produced and hosted by me, Karen Wolk-Feinstein, Megan Butler and Scotland Huber are my associate producers. This episode was edited and engineered by Jonathan Kirsting and the Pittsburgh Technology Council. Thank you, Tech Council. Our theme music is from Shutterstock.com. Social media and design are by Lisa George and Scotland Huber. Special thanks to Robert Ferguson and Stephen Guo. Thank you all for listening.